This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 176, and today I sat down with Tom Hale, the CEO of Aura. Aura is the company behind the Aura Ring, the smart ring that delivers personalized health data, insights, and daily guidance. With sleep as its foundation, the Aura Ring fosters healthy habits to make wellness and recovery a mindful daily practice. Founded in Finland, Aura has raised more than $350 million and is valued at $2.5 billion. Tom joins the show with us today to share his story from growing up as the youngest of four in Reno, Nevada, with dreams to become a train engineer, to working for a computer graphics company in North Carolina, which was acquired by Macromedia, to working for Adobe and then HomeAway, which was acquired by Expedia, to discovering the Aura Ring and writing a letter to the board about why they should hire him to be CEO. He talks about his leadership style, how it's lonely at the top, and how he got a crash course in fundraising by raising $40 million in just four weeks. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in becoming CEO at Aura Ring. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Lee. I'm glad to be here. So let's start from the very beginning. Young Tom, way back in the day, where did you grow up? What was childhood like? I grew up in the dusty streets of a dusty town, Reno, Nevada, on the suburbs of the Bay Area, child of of the 80s, maybe a little bit of the 90s too. I grew up a card-carrying member of Generation X, I guess. But yeah, I went to, went to high school there, stayed there until went away to school. Before even that, before that, when you were a kid. Before that? Yeah, as a kid. When you were a kid, what kind of kid were you? What were you into? Like, what did you want to be when you grew up? It's a good question. I think when I wanted to grow, when I wanted to, when I was a little kid and I wanted to figure out what I wanted to be, I, I wanted to be an engineer. How did you know about engineering? Like, what age were you? Well, this is the thing. It wasn't a computer software engineer. It was a train engineer. Really? Because you love trains. Yeah. I love trains so much. So I was really into trains. That's hilarious. I have a two-year-old right now, and he's obsessed with the you know the little engine that could book. We just got it for him. He's obsessed. So I, I, I totally get it. Comes with the territory. Totally. Right? Kids kids and trains. Can't, can't go wrong. So I guess I wanted to be an engineer. Although the truth was is that I was kind of a math and science geek growing up, probably until about age 15, when uh, I was introduced to the idea that maybe being a math and science geek wasn't going to get me a girl. 
friends. So I figured out how to, how to speak other languages, humanities, and, and kind of shifted that way. And then after college, I uh, came back to math and science as my calling. But I think probably a nerd, I think, would be how I describe myself. Were you picked on at all in school? Like that kind of nerd? I think everybody gets picked on. I don't think, I, you know, I probably wasn't. I, I assume so. I mean, I was picked on, but there were kids in my school that didn't get kicked. I feel like they didn't get picked on, but I was one of the ones that got picked on for sure. I don't think I got picked on like dramatically, but but yeah, I mean, there were a couple of times when I got into scraps with, with folks and, and maybe felt a little bit picked on for sure. Yeah. So you love trains. What did your parents do? Did you have siblings? I did. I had four siblings, three of them old, older than me. And by a good distance, I was definitely the, uh, what do they call it? The late marriage surprise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. And so I actually, I probably had probably more than sisters and, and siblings. I had kind of elders and, and people who looked out for me. But I was I was definitely at the tail end of the family procreative trajectory. And so I kind of was on my own a little bit. I think that's probably the, the defining feature of, of my childhood was just kind of being on my own. And How many years apart are we talking from your sibling? I think the, the, the smallest gap is like eight years, seven years, eight years. Is that your gap? So you're eight years before your your oldest. Yeah, yeah, eight years younger. Yeah, yeah, eight years younger. Yeah, I mean that's that's a real trip because of course they were sort of I think probably coerced into taking care of me, which I think has has led me to to have a, a great asset in life, which is I think everyone is going to take care of me all the time, right? <laughs> so I was sort of trained that the world was there to sort of look out for me, but also that I could kind of be on my own and, and wander around and not that could be pretty independent. So I think that's probably that's probably the the, the sum of it as a little kid was kind of being a latchkey kid, but also feeling very protected and loved. That sounds like a good positive thing. For sure. And so looking back in childhood, just one more question. Did you feel like you had kind of natural leadership skills as a kid looking back? Is this something that, you know, you think has followed you throughout life? I don't know. Does does anybody really have natural leadership skills? Yeah. I think so. I mean, a kid, I mean, I've definitely, not to toot my own horn, but I feel like I had some capacity to want to lead. There were scenarios where I wanted to do things differently and I could rally people to follow and do that because I wanted to do it. (laughs) I guess that's probably true. Maybe that's persuasiveness rather than leadership. Yeah, I think it's it's probably like I think maybe two two things I would identify, and I think this is partially because my house was where everyone you know in my kind of high school and maybe junior high friend group congregated. So I was often the host, and I think there's some element of like leadership as hosting, you know, service leadership or something. There's probably some thread to pull on there, but that was definitely true. And then I think I think the other thing, and, and maybe this is just part of the uh, grit podcast uh, revelatory parade that I that you're hoping for, because I've never said this publicly, but I was always the dungeon master in Dungeons and Dragons, which I guess, again, is also a form of leadership, maybe, where you're sort of orchestrating the adventure for the group. And, and that'll be very familiar, I think, to anybody who grew up in the 80s and 90s, although I will note that Dungeons and Dragons is on a comeback. My kids and their friends are all into it. So it's, it's sort of come back into the, the cultural relevance. That's hilarious. And are you also helping your kids like host and lead some of those? I've been known to offer some advice, which mostly consists of use chat GPT to create your Dungeons and Dragons campaigns. It's a lot easier than asking me. Thank you very much. Oh my gosh. Worst advice. No, I'm just kidding. Your kids. 
Yeah, it's so funny. It's good. I mean, they do it themselves. It's 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 creativity as part of the Dungeons and Dragons thing. But yeah, ChatGPT is pretty amazing. But that very much is hosting. That is very much is. I mean, I think back too to like even just always wanting to be, you know, the person that has the their name on the lease. So I have control over the apartment and who's going to live there. Or, hey, we're going to go to Paris and we're all going to go because I want to go. And this is cheap tickets and rallying people to go. So I think it, that that hosting piece, it's very, I think, very leadership kind of based. But anyway, so you were into Dungeons and Dragons and you were a host. And then you kind of, you know, you went from wanting to be a train engineer to to what? So to what happened after that? You kind of realized you like math and science, but maybe the girls don't like it. Yeah. I mean, I, I sort of had, you know, I went off to college and, and kind of, I ended up studying history, but actually, strangely enough, it started me down this path of wanting to study about businesses because I, I studied history and a little bit of history of technology. And I started getting into, actually, ironically enough, I got into the idea of the rise and fall of trains in, in America, like the transportation network, the trains. Yeah. I mean, I'm following, I'm, you're, you're pulling on the thread here, but, and what it sort of illustrated was, this idea that businesses have an impact on a society and that a society gets something from businesses, you know, in this case, transportation and frictionless movement of goods and lower costs and time zones and all these, the telegraph that linked the West and East Coast together. There's all this stuff that sort of for a student of history, I think, looking at the history of the train transportation industry from its, you know, beginning to its heyday to its current state is really interesting. What it started me down the path is like, oh, wow, businesses are kind of interesting. You know, they're not, it's not all boring bean counting and stuff like that. And maybe a little bit also too, like technology, because there was a time when steam travel or locomotives was like a new technology and, and had big impacts on society and changed the way people thought about the world and themselves and got me down this path of thinking, like, this is really interesting. And I, maybe there's something in this for me. And I'd always been, you know, into computers, you know, I had the Apple II as a kid and went to the university to do programming and stuff like that. So all, all of those kind of threads, although reality is I didn't really end up pursuing that so deeply. I became kind of like a glorified IT person after college, helping people out, you know, like set up their office networks and stuff like that. I didn't go through a computer science training. I, I came with a, a graduate with a degree in history, but I always had that that bent. And so sort of pulling on the threads of like, technology and its impact on society and how people change because of technology. And then sort of having a little bit of experience with personal computers and being able to do some very basic things kind of came together and sort of led me on down the path that I'm on today. That's awesome. And so what were some of the other jobs that you had after you what graduated with a degree in history? You know, I had, I had a, a fair number of kind of like odd jobs. So I, I actually worked for a while at a place called Egghead Software, which I don't think exists anymore, but it was like a retail software place. And so I was, for example, when Microsoft Office first came out, I remember being trained on how to sell the benefits of Microsoft Word, PowerPoint, and Excel together. So, you know, that would be the one. Another one was was uh, an interesting one, which I did. And actually, it got, it got me into technology too, but I used to read scripts for movie producers who wanted to make movies. And so I'd read their script and then summarize it into like, you know, a very digestible format that actually fax it from the computer. It was one of the interesting innovations. You could actually... How did you get access to that in Nevada? I'm thinking you're in Nevada. Oh, no, no, no. I graduated. I graduated from college. I went to, I went to Harvard College. Okay. So you're at Harvard. I came out of Harvard. It was the early 90s. And the only thing that was going on in the economy was there was a lot of Japanese money 
in Hollywood. You know, Sony had come and bought up Columbia, and there were all these there were all these things that were going on. That's that seemed to be where the action was. So I gravitated there and and had my I had a little computer consulting business where I would help people with their computers or set up their offices and on the side, just because I was there and I could read quickly and write quickly, I did these summaries of of scripts for people. And it was good. It was good money at the time. It's like you paid 50 bucks an hour, depending on how fast you were. So yeah, good dough. Good dough. So you graduated and what were some, how did you kind of, what was your plan? You graduated from a really great college. And now what do you kind of foresee for yourself at that moment? But then what, how, what did, what actually went down? What happened? I wish that I had a really good plan because I certainly did not. I kind of ended up, I moved first to New York and then to LA. And in LA, I was, you know, kind of doing, doing the uh, egghead software slash script reading gig. And, and I kind of got on this sense of like, wow, there's stuff happening in the tech industry and it's all happening in the Bay Area. And I need to figure out, I need to figure out how to get there. And, and how do I get into that? And, and I, I don't think I really knew how or anything. And I kind of, you know, I, I called people and said, hey, will you guys take a meeting with me? And they're like, yeah, but like, why? You know, <laughs> what, what do you have to offer? And this is a funny story. I got a call. And at the time of the call, I was living on a friend's couch. That was sort of the, that's the level that I In had, LA? Had is this in to. LA? In LA. Living, yeah, living in a friend's couch. And I got a call and it was from a guy who was raising money for my school. And I said, look, I, I think you're barking up the wrong tree here. I don't think, I don't think I'm someone who's going to have a lot of money for you. And he says, well, well, tell me what's going on. You know, and I said, well, blah, 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 looking for a job, trying to, trying to break into tech. And he goes, oh, really? I have a couple of friends who are starting up a company. And I was like, really? What is it? Oh, it's a, it's a computer graphics company. It's based in North Carolina. And they're really clever, creative people. And and I don't know, I could introduce you to them. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds great. You know, introduce me. And he said, well, yeah, they're, it's the Kruger brothers. And I was like, I've never heard of them. He said, well, do you know anything about desktop publishing? And in fact, I did. I knew a fair amount about desktop publishing because I had been using that for a variety of, of purposes at various points. And this is back in the day when like using a computer was not widespread, right? Like, this is the this is the late eighties, early nineties. Like people were just sort of catching on to the idea that you could do all these things with computers and desktop publishing was one of them. Anyway, so I knew something about desktop publishing. He said, Well, why don't I put you in touch with these guys? And I said, Okay, great. So I'll put you in touch with with the, one of the Kruger brothers, Freddy Kruger. It was literally the guy's name, Freddy Krueger, which is a nightmare on Elm Street reference for those of you who uh, who didn't grow up scared from Freddy Krueger and his scissor hands. Anyway, I call them up and they say, well, yeah, we're, we're, you know, we got five people in our company. We'd love to meet you. You know anything about desktop publishing? Yeah, I do. You know, great. Come on out. We're looking out for somebody to lead sales and marketing. Do you know anything about sales and marketing? I said, yes, of course I didn't. I didn't know anything about sales and marketing, you know, really. I flew out to North Carolina where the company was. We had lunch. And I'll tell you, when I got off the plane, and this is back when you could get off a plane and people could still meet you at the gate, right? Before all this TSA stuff. And I walked off the plane and I was all spruced up. Like I had a jacket and a tie, you know, my best, like I'm going for an interview look. And I, I get off the plane and I see these two guys and they are like decrepit, disheveled food in their beards, you know, like just imagine what they've been programming for 24 days straight, night and day, you know, like not leaving the computer. And I just looked, I gave one look and I was like, I should get back on the plane. I should go home. This is crazy. They're holding like a, a piece of crumpled up paper, like a pe- with, with my name written on a, a ballpoint pen, you know, it just looked like, anyway, I went for it. And they were, of course, mad geniuses. They had figured out a way to kind of do 
imaging for large scale images. And this is a, a time when imaging in, with large scale images was hard. We do it today on our iPhones, no big deal, but this is whatever, 35 years ago. And it was really exciting. And I said, look, I, I would love to join the company. So well, we would love to have you. And I said, that's great. And, and they said, yeah, we'll give you, we'll give you 1%. And I was like, that sounds awesome. Not even really knowing what 1% meant, you know, like, what does that mean? I said, I have one condition. And they said, what's your condition? I said, well, the one thing I know about digital media is it's all happening in San Francisco. So we have to move the company back to San Francisco or move the company to San Francisco because that's where the action is. And they were, they were in uh, Technology Triangle Park in, in North Carolina, which is actually, you know, IBM, a lot of stuff there. But digital media, man, all that stuff was happening in San Francisco. So I was like, let's go. And so they said, yeah, let's do it. And a couple months later, we, we moved the company. To, it was called Fove Software and moved the company. And then about six months after that, the internet happened. And then about six months after that, we got acquired by a company called Macromedia, and I, I was off to the races. Wow. What a wild, lucky kind of opportunity and journey. And you didn't have to live in North Carolina, because I was wondering where that was going to go. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? No. You're in New York, from, LA, uh, yeah. and now you're going to North Carolina? Yeah, North Carolina is actually really nice. And if there's anybody who's listening to this podcast in North Carolina, no offense meant of course, we're not hating on North Carolina. Things are also so different now. You can work anywhere. It's remote, right? But back in that day, I would imagine it would be very difficult. But anyways, the, yes, we're not hating on North Carolina. Maybe a little. No, I'm just kidding. All right. So what happened from there? So you you got into this incredible job. About a year later, it sounds like you guys were acquired. And so you went to work for that new company? I went to work for the new company and they said, hey, we kind of think maybe you could be the product manager of this little team. Do you know anything about product management? And I said, yes, absolutely. Of course, I didn't know anything about it. And so they kind of put me through some interview paces and and I did okay, I guess. And, and they, they put me in the job. And, you know, it was probably my like learning on the job moment, like figuring stuff out. And I can remember some moments of real like high anxiety because I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> Imposter syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Trying, trying to figure it out. I, I, it's funny. I was just talking to my wife about this. There, there was a night that, that we had, we had just met and she was out visiting and I was like freaking out. Cause I was like, I don't even know how am I supposed to do this thing? And she calmed me down. I was like, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. But it was, it was like a product launch moment. And it was the project had, was overwhelming and large and I hadn't figured out exactly how to do it. And she was like, you just break it down into small pieces and it'll be fine. Great compliment for my wife, by the way, Karen, if you're, if you're listening, thank you very much. It saved my day. Not the, not the last time either. Oh, that's awesome. It was really in your corner, helping you out, get through things. Right. So, so sounds like you took wife's advice. You were like, all right, I'll break this down, get through this. And sounds like you probably made it out on the other end. Okay. Yeah. Came out. All right. Came out. We launched the product. Yeah, this this was, I think we're talking like early 90s, something like that, 95, 94. At Macromedia, and then you went off to Adobe. So how did that happen? What was the transition there like? Well, I had stayed at Macromedia for about 10 years. I guess actually maybe by the time it was all said and done, maybe 12 years. But I'd been there for a long time and, and had a bunch of different jobs during my time there. And I think I think this is actually, maybe this is a great lesson, which is that Early in your career, if you're at a company where there's more work than there are people to do it, and the internet was happening, and so there was a great sucking sound as there were more companies than there were employees to staff them, you can move up really quickly in your career. And so, you know, I found myself promoted to new roles and new positions every couple of years 
And in that period, like I, I learned all the foundational skills. And it's funny, this is a, a moment here because right before I joined Macromedia, I had the had been accepted to business school and I was thinking about going to business school. And I had a conversation with with one of the Krugers and he's like, don't be an idiot. We just got acquired. You probably are going to, I don't think, he, you know, I hadn't gotten the job yet, but you're going to get this, you're going to get a job at the new company. It's that the internet is happening around us right now. You go and take two years at, at business school. Like, what are you doing? And I so I decided to stay with the company and didn't go to business school and read a lot of books <laughs> to try and catch up and do all that that business school stuff that you do. And then ended up kind of learning everything what I call on the streets. You know, I learned how to how to do all the acquisitions and growing new businesses and learning how to do product management, product marketing, and learning how to work with engineering teams and learning how to create new products or see them, you know, fail, learned a bunch of lessons along the way. And at the end of that time, I was like, a, you know, whatever, senior vice president and GM at Macromedia. And when Adobe came calling to acquire, you know, I was one of the people that along with a couple other folks who were really important to the company was one of the people they said, Hey, we really want you to come and, and be part of Adobe. Yeah. That's awesome. And then you were, you were at Adobe for six years and that's where you, I think said that you moved up the ladder quite quickly Every couple of years, you were no, no, no. I wasn't at Adobe for very long. Actually, Adobe was a a, a much bigger company. Macromedia, Macromedia was like I don't know, two thousand employees or something like that when we got acquired. And I had joined it when it was maybe two hundred employees, which is like a small company going to a mid-sized company. And I think Adobe was like a six thousand person company, and it was big. It was too big for me. I was like, I, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not really cut out for this. And so I left. I left in two thousand seven, maybe. So a couple of years after the acquisition, it's a pretty typical story, right? I felt like I was a founder of Macromedia, even though I wasn't, but I, I felt strongly identified with it. And then you kind of go into the company that acquires you and you feel like, hey, it's not quite the same. It's not quite as you want it to be. And maybe that particular trains run its course. Yeah. Acquisitions are always, I guess, tough. There's a lot of transition that happens. And so then after Adobe, what did you end up doing from there? What were some of the lessons you learned and why transition out of Adobe? Well, I think part of it was I had been dealing with the same problems for for near twelve years. I, you know, Macromedia made made software for developers and for creative professionals, and that's that's ultimately you know people probably know Macromedia for the products like Dreamweaver or Fireworks or Flash things things that were part of the tool set that that web developers used to make the early web, at least the creative side of the early web, the marketing side of the early web happened. You know, Flash was animated games and animations and loops and, and you know, giving video to giving, you know, making a website more interesting. We used to say it added life to the web. Anyway, it was all, it was all that set of problems. You know, I was like, look, after 12 years of figuring out how to make whatever technology that plays within a browser more creative or more interesting, I kind of wanted to try something new, and I actually stumbled into SaaS. The company had started a little SaaS business. It was a web collaboration tool that was known as Breeze and then later Adobe Connect. And I just kind of got really interested in, in doing something new. And so I actually thought about, you know, when I when I left, I was like, I don't wonder, what would I like to do? Oh, I, I love this idea of, like, people connecting. I love this idea of rich media, you know, like rich, immersive media. And I love this idea of real-time communications all of which I'd worked on for a couple of years. And there was a company called Second Life that was doing this with kind of a consumer interface. And if people know Minecraft 
today or maybe Roblox. Second Life was kind of a progenitor of those companies where you had a, you know, you'd log in and you'd sort of take on an avatar that was your alter ego and then you could chat or create things together. It was a very, it was a collaborative creative space, really interesting kind of space. I joined that company and we were given the charter to sort of reinvent that a little bit. And so we redesigned a lot of the software and, and relaunched it, kind of gave it a, a sort of a consumer upgrade. Didn't really take. So <laughs> that one didn't work out as well. I, I think the, the the business is still around and it's still a reasonable good size, but it never kind of crossed over into the mainstream. And that was the that was the aspiration that the investors had at the time. Yeah. So then you're like, well, that didn't work. So what did you end up doing from there? It looks like you spent some time at a company called HomeAway, which has a similar ring to my company that was called WearAway. So tell us about HomeAway. Well, so here it is. It's 2010 or something like that, 2009, 2010. This company in Texas had acquired all of or most of the vacation rental sites on the planet. And HomeAway was this roll-up of vacation rental sites. And by vacation rental site, I mean a place where people who own what today you know people refer to as VRBOs or Airbnbs, and they go and they market those those properties, those you know things to travelers or guests who want to come and stay in them. And so HomeAway was the parent company. I think of, I think they'd done something like twenty-five or thirty acquisitions. And I had come out of Second Life and said, I'm never going to do another big platform redo because the big platform radio is hard and painful and risky and stuff like that. And then I went to HomeAway and I was really captured by the idea that you could like rent out a property to someone over the internet and they would come and stay in it. And then, you know, it was just this really interesting kind of like confluence of, of what we, I think today call like the gig economy, you know, like you have some asset that's being underutilized to your car. So you do it on Uber or your house, you do it on Airbnb. This was just sort of starting to come into focus. And I just was really captivated by the idea that, you know, somebody from Western Europe who wanted to stay in Northern California wine country could find a place to stay and come stay in it. And that the people who were on either side of that transaction would shake hands and exchange money. And a couple months later, you'd have somebody from Western Europe staying in a house in Sonoma. It was just, it was crazy. So I was really excited by that. But of course, it was a massive platform redo. And I was like, oh my God, 25 acquisitions need to be consolidated into a single technical platform. And, and so we did that. That was that was what I did at, at HomeAway, along with some incredibly talented technical people who really drove the hard part. I just was sort of the like orchestra conductor trying to lead it along. And then there was another acquisition. So they got acquired by Expedia. Expedia. Yep. Yep. So we had, after doing the platform consolidation, we had kind of added e-commerce, right? That was the rationale for doing the platform consolidation. So you could build an e-commerce engine, so you could book the properties online, all that kind of stuff. And we had just changed the business model to be a different business model. And it was one where the traveler pays a fee to rent the property. And that was very successful. And Expedia, you know, bought the company. And, and at the end of that, I was like, it's time to head back to the Bay Area. Let's let's see what's coming up next. And so I Took a couple months off, sat around, struggled trying to figure out what it is I wanted to do next, and, and then got really excited by the idea of big data and machine learning being applied to, to surveys. And so joined SurveyMonkey to do that and was there for five years. And at the end of that, we sold to Zendesk. And then about six months after selling to Zendesk, it got unsold. The deal fell apart. Uh, shareholders from Zendesk did not approve it. And it was during that time that I lost a fair amount of sleep. 
felt a fair amount of stress and started looking around for a way to, to address that and bumped into the aura ring. And for those of you who don't know what the aura ring is, it's a ring that that allows you to track your sleep and your health and your biometrics and gives you kind of a, a simple way of interpreting both how you slept the night before and how your day might go today. And, you know, it provides, it dispenses some, some education and content about sleep. And so for me, during that period of, of losing sleep, it really changed my life. I kind of, I was not sleeping well. <laughs> I was drinking many cups of coffee and then drinking a beer or a glass of wine to kind of take the edge off and watching Netflix late into the night and staring at my phone and doom scrolling. And I was really feeling, you know, this sort of lack of sleep and made a couple of very intentional changes. And I'm telling you, it was as if like the sun came out from behind a cloud or, you know, I walked from a black and white movie into color. I realized I've been sleep deprived for most of my adult life. Wow. Yeah. And so what initially caused that kind of anxiety or stress that led to the the loss, lack of kind of sleep? Was that when you were working at SurveyMonkey or with the Zendesk thing? What was going on? Well, we, we had sold the company to Zendesk and it, it started to become clear after the deal was announced, but not approved. It had been approved by the management teams and the board, but the shareholders had to approve it. And it was clear that the shareholder support was not as rock solid as maybe everyone thought it was. And I think that was a combination of, of we had negotiated a really good deal, maybe. <laughs> you know, we had, the price was, was maybe too high for, for Zenda shareholders. But, but also, I don't think that the, the story or the way the story was articulated was, was as compelling to uh, Zendesk shareholders as it was to Zendesk board and management. Anyway, whole point is that was going south. I was also struggling because this was COVID, maybe fall of 20, I guess. Is that right? Maybe fall of 21. So fall of 21. So we were like, there was COVID stress. Um, my, I have, you know, young kids, there was stress for my kids. One of them was particularly stressed and then we were really working hard to support that kiddo. You know, I think I was feeling the, the work pressure and, and, not sleeping on top of it was just really tough. It was a, it was a, it was a dark time uh, and, uh, and aura kind of came into it. And by, by like at least getting sleep under control really helped because all of a sudden, you know, I had like more resilience and more energy and my mood was better and my cognition was better. And all these things were, you know, kind of much more tractable. <laughs> so you heard about, did you hear about aura ring from a friend? Did you, how did you discover it? Yeah, no, I I was searching on the internet uh, for for things about sleep. Interesting, and it came up as like you know if you're thinking about sleep, you ought to be thinking about Aura. And coincidentally, they were running a search at the same time. Oh, interesting. And so, what what were some of the first things that you noticed when you used Aura? Because I've been using the Aura Ring, and I've been loving it, and it definitely tells you things about your sleep and I guess the the REM and light and deep sleeps. I was kind of shocked to realize that I have a lot of light sleeping going on. It's really amazing how it can track just so many different things, your activity level. What were some things that you, I guess, saw or noticed in your patterns when you first started wearing the ring that helped you change some things? I think the first thing that I noticed was that I had a lot of nighttime wake-ups that I wasn't aware of. Interesting. What was waking you up? I think it was the alcohol the, the, and, and maybe the coffee alcohol combo. And and so that was kind of like playing a little bit of havoc. I also noticed that like I tended to fall asleep at very different times. Like I'd fall asleep one night at midnight or 11 and then sometimes at one. And that was mostly based on kind of like maybe even how much coffee I'd had during the day. Cause I'd sort of go until I couldn't go anymore and then I'd fall asleep and I, you know, crawl into bed and fall asleep. And so learning, learning that like 
actually your body wants you to fall asleep at the same time every night, more or less, not like exactly, but within an hour or so. Like that's really helpful because it sort of trains your body to recover. And then in fact, the first part of the night, which is when you usually get the bulk of your deep sleep, is when a lot of your restoration happens. That's when your body is recovering. It's when your your muscles are regenerating. It's when all these sort of physical recovery things are happening. And the second half of the night is when a lot of the kind of cognitive things are being worked on. You know, REM sleep happens more frequently or at a greater percentage in the second half of the night. But that's where a lot of your like cognitive processing happens. And the thing is, as drinking coffee and alcohol tends to play havoc with your REM sleep. So I was kind of getting it on both ends. My body wasn't recovering. And my my cognition, you know, was was not as getting as much uh, sort of you know recovery time as it needed. So learning that I needed recovery that was the big thing because I had grown up with a culture of just go 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 go, not take a break. And and so in some sense, learning that that's what my body needed, hearing that, making some changes like stopping. <laughs> I made some very basic changes: stop drinking as much coffee. Ultimately, went cold turkey off of coffee. Stop drinking wine before bed to, to, you know, to fall asleep. Stop staying up. Don't watch that extra episode of Netflix. Don't, don't, do, don't doom scroll. And all those things, you know, just made some very basic changes, started sleeping in a colder room. And the change was, was pretty instant. I mean, it was about two weeks time. And I was like, wow, I feel materially different. So interesting. Yeah. I've been enjoying all the insights that I've been able to gain because it's really hard to make any changes if you're not kind of aware especially when you're sleeping, of the quality of sleep you're getting. Yeah, sleep is this daily habit that everybody does. And, you know, not no one really knows what happens when they sleep. And maybe you have some sense of it. Like, you probably know when you have a really crap night of sleep and you're probably, oh, I feel terrible. But there's this interesting thing where like, well, what's the difference between like not a a terrible night of sleep, but like a so-so night of sleep and a good night of sleep? Well, it turns out that's a pretty material difference. And starting to understand what your behavioral choices are that affect that actually can make that difference. And you, so you can go from having a so-so night of sleep to having a good night of sleep. And if you do that 15 days out of 30 in a month, I'm guaranteeing you, you're going to feel different. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You will be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. There's something about when you have like, even I always like, I check the app and I'm like, oh, it says my sleep was optimal last night. Yes. All of a sudden that's like another boost of like, I did it. I had a great night of sleep. I feel great. Like it emphasizes the sleeping and feeling like you are, are ready for the day. Well, that that's the second score, the the readiness score, which is an aggregate of like 
your behavior over the last two weeks, your temperature, your HRV, your resting heart rate, sort of all calculated together, kind of give you a score for the day. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of Aura customers and they say, you know, the readiness score kind of tells me how my day is going to go. Do it. Can I, can I run the extra two miles on my workout? Can I push a little bit harder at work? Uh, can I, should I take, should I tackle a really hard project at this one of our ambassadors is a guy named Chris Paul, who's a basketball player, plays for the Phoenix Suns. Recently, actually traded to uh, Golden State Warriors, so he'll be he'll be joining us in the Bay Area. Welcome, Chris. We're glad to have you back. But he says he tells a story. He's a big Aura fan. He tells a story when during a, a championship series in the NBA, not not for the I don't think it was for the total championship, it was for the conference championship, and he's on like game five or game six, and like you know it's 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 neck and neck. And he sleeps and wakes up and he looks at his readiness score and the message, because each time you get a score, you get a number, you get a numeric value, one to a hundred, but you also get a little message. And so for him, like he, he keeps a screenshot of the message and said, bring it on exclamation point. And he went on to go score 41 points in the game that he played that day. And like they carried it through the conference championships. Like it was, it was one of these things where like that kind of voice that his body was speaking to him saying, Today's a day we should go for it. Let's go. You and me, Chris, let's 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 take it on. And that kind of power giving your body a voice, I think it's it's really central to what Aura does. And I felt it, as I said, in my own life. It helped me, helped me through this time. So how did you go from customer of Aura to CEO of Aura Ring? How did that happen? They were doing a search and I did something which is which is pretty uncharacteristic of, of myself, which I really put myself out there and I said, You guys, you guys really need to hire me and the board said well you know we were kind of thinking maybe somebody else like you know the profile we want is sort of consumer product goods maybe a physical fitness background but who did you say this to 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 the board but how did you get in front of the board i mean that's not a normal oh well they were doing a search yeah they were doing a search the board was doing a search doing a search for a new ceo i found out they were doing a search you know i got a call from from the recruiter on it and i was like that's crazy you guys you know i'm Stoked about this company, and you guys are doing a search. I'm just, uh, count me in. And they were sort of like, they were kind of like, you know, we, we like you. You're very much a software person. We were thinking someone consumer product goods, maybe a little physiology background, and maybe kind of more, more like somebody who comes out of Nike or something like that. And I was like, well, I, you know, I think you guys need to, you guys should hire me. And here's why. And I wrote them a letter with all the reasons why, you know, really put myself out there, setting myself up for them to be like, Thanks for your input, but no thanks. And I think it really it made a difference. It did. And I think ultimately they they you know maybe after a set of interviews and a couple of times of me sort of making my points, they they, they gave me the job. At what point did you feel like I'm sure it was a bunch of different meetings? Was there a moment where you're like, oh, I don't know if this is going in the right direction? And then when did it turn? And you're like, oh, I think maybe I have it. I think it was right right before I wrote the letter. I was like, "This is not going. <laughs> this is not going to go the way I, I have to. I have to make my case here and and make it strongly." So I really did. Do you still have that letter? I would love to hear that letter. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's very respectful, very polite, but but very like directed about this is what you guys need. You need someone with a software background. You need somebody who has a breadth of experience. You need somebody who knows how to navigate these kinds of transitions, that kind of stuff. You know, it was all very rational and logical, but but there was a strong intent behind it. And and I think maybe sometimes you get that that intent coming through and people really say, okay, here's somebody who's motivated and motivation counts. I imagine it must be a difficult thing to tell another company what they need, right? Yeah. You're taking a risk going out on a limb. 
Right. Because they're like, how do you, you know, who are you to tell us what we need? We think we need this, this and this. And I think normally people would say, oh, you need, you're telling me you need X, Y, Z. So this is how I fit into those boxes. But it sounds like you're saying, no, no, you need this, this and this. And I fill those boxes. So it's, it's a very, it sounds like it's a different kind of almost approach. Well, like I said, it was pretty uncharacteristic, but I, I will say this, and, I, and maybe this is, I don't know if anybody's listening or, or cares to, but like, I get most excited about working on products that that I can like both understand, touch and feel and are relevant and relatable to and are, on a really human level. And the thing is, I had just had this experience with the Aura Ring. It was incredibly transformative for me. And so I could speak from some position of authority, not just about the product, because I kind of have, have grown up in my career as a product person. So I think about products in terms of their features and their benefits and the platform and the technology and the things that they can do and the adjacent possibles that surround them, all that stuff. I think about things through the lens of a product person, but also I was coming to it as a customer and somebody who had just had this transformative experience, which by the way, like most products on the, on the planet, they do not transform me. They might promise transformation, but most do not. That is reality. But here was one that had transformed you know, me at least. And I really felt that opportunity in a really profound way. And so I think that probably added to the case I was making. Absolutely. And so what were some of the things, I guess, that are things that you've envisioned? I mean, you've been there a year, almost a year and a half. And what were some of your initial thoughts of the role of being CEO and leading our ring initially? And what has it been for you, actually? Yeah, I think so. My, my initial thoughts were, it's really important for the CEO to have kind of like a a leadership mandate, meaning you can't just come in and tell everybody what to do. You need to have the support of your staff and of your team. And you need to have a clear articulation of like what it is that that you need to do. And and for for me, that that looked a lot like, hey, let's let's accelerate our investment in the software. Let's let's deliver a really great experience in the software because the hardware is amazing. It's incredible, you know, product. And and it was a a business that was in the midst of a transition to a subscription business model. I knew a fair bit about subscription business models. I worked with subscription business models since early 2000s. And so I, I kind of brought that. So I had to kind of call it earn earn my stripes with the team. And that was, the, and, and I think I came in very much with like, hey, I'm here to help. And, and let me, let, let's see how I can help. And, and, and to knit the, the team together, it had grown really dramatically in the past couple of years. But during COVID, everyone's cast, you know, to the four wins. And, and and I feel like one of the jobs of any leader is to pull everyone together and to connect people and, and to find those opportunities for people to feel connected to the mission and to the team. Okay. So come in with that. Come to find a couple months after joining, right? This is sort of, I guess, May, April, May, stock market meltdown, <laughs> you know, war in Ukraine, uh, inflation starts, all this, all this sort of macroeconomic uh, stuff had really started to go a little bit south. And so as I'm pulling everyone together and unifying everybody and connecting them, I'm also starting to think, okay, we're going to have to like haul back on expenditures here. And the first thing that we went after was marketing. We kind of cut back on marketing successive months for, for three or four months and come to find that it turns out that there was a huge organic and viral kind of component to the Aura business where people were telling each other about this product and you should get one and it's really great. And here's what it did for me. That the marketing, even though we cut the marketing, the business did great. And so that was sort of the first thing. And then 
Second thing is we had to do a big hiring pause. Uh, the company had been on a real hiring tear. So I put my foot down on the brakes there. And that was, you know, shocking for some people because they were like, they had only grown up in this period of like unbridled expansion. And so this idea of, wait, wait, it would mean I can't just hire another 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people, right? So we had to change that. And then ultimately it came down to sort of educating the company about unit economics, which is that you can't sell something at a loss and make it up in volume, uh, right? I think that's an old, an old Mel Brooks joke, but you know, you're never going to make it up on volume. So we kind of fixed the unit economics of the company and enrolling out a subscription business model really improved it. And, and the business, you know, has, has done great since then. It's been on a real tear. That's exciting. Sounds like you've made a lot of great improvements and changes. Those are always hard things to come in and try to do, I think, probably as the newbie, right? So what were some of the challenges, I guess, in taking on the role of CEO? Obviously, there's tons of them. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, it's a very challenging role. So, you know, anybody who who's thinking about wanting to go and be a CEO, just, you know, make sure you you really, really want want it because there, there's it's tough. I mean, it's, it's definitely some of the highest highs I felt in my life, but also some of the lowest lows. I would say, you know, the kind of night before I had to present kind of to the company, the sort of austerity plan, if you will, I was really, I was really worried about it because, you know, I was like, what, how are people going to think about this? Is this going to change everyone's perspective? And I was really comforted by the idea that this was a mission led company. People join Aura because they want to improve the lot of people who are either struggling with sleep or want to improve their health or want to improve their fitness, want to optimize their their performance. There's a real sense of the mission. And so I was really connected to the idea that we could draw on the strength of people being connected to the mission. But I was nervous about it. And I remember the night before being a little anxious about it. And then we, you know, the next day we had an all hands and I kind of called out that like we had to make some some of these changes. And honestly, it was it went better than I expected. That's great. But I can imagine, like most people in that same position, it's only human to feel a little nervous and a little self-doubt of, okay, I'm going to put my neck out here and try to present this plan. And I hope I don't get judged too harshly for it, or hopefully it resonates. And I'm sure there's a lot of emotions before going in there to give that, but I'm sure it sounds like it went well and was well-received. If there's a lesson that I took away from it, it's that hard things are hard. But if you do them, you know, kind of one step at a time or you break them down into smaller things, then they're at least manageable. They may still be hard, but they're at least manageable. And then if you make right decisions or more right decisions than wrong decisions, you'll have a good outcome uh, because you'll have made progress and in and, and the path of progress, every right decision and every step forward is is part of what it takes to build a business. What do you think most people don't know about being a CEO? Wow. Well, I think it depends on the person, but I, I think one of the sort of image of a CEO is is all knowing and all powerful. And I would say, you know, sometimes you don't feel very powerful and you don't feel very all knowing, right? A lot of times you need to make decisions with incomplete information. And 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 I think that can be very can be disconcerting at times because you you need to be decisive, but you may not feel like you have all the information that you need to make a, a really great decision. And of course, outcomes are indeterminate. So, so will this decision you're making have the outcome you want? You don't know. So I think that's a big part of it. I think the other part of it is that it's a little bit, a little bit of a lonely job. And, and I think certainly anybody who's sort of studied what CEOs sometimes write, like this comes through as a thread, you know, that it's a little bit of a lonely job. And that's because you kind of have to keep your own counsel a lot of times and you can't share everything with everybody. And, and sometimes you, your best friend is the person you can share some ideas with who has nothing to do with the business and is not connected to it in any way. So you can speak, you can speak freely, but, but I do think, I think that kind of 
being, let me put it this way. I, I think that the role of a CEO sometimes is to go against the grain. And, and, and I can think of a very specific story here that, that would traumatize this, which is at Macromedia, the company had a fair amount of success rising with kind of web 1.0. And I remember one kind of like, I don't know, planning offsite or quarterly business review or something like that, where we were all congratulating ourselves for what a great job we'd done. You know, well, we were really killed at this quarter. We were so off. And the CEO, a guy named Rob Burgess, who was a great CEO and a good mentor, came in and he gave us a speech about like we were one stop away on the train. I don't know why trains keep coming back today, but one stop away on the train from a place he called Palookaville. And Palookaville was like, you're nobody, <laughs> you know, like you, you think you're successful, but like you're one stop away from being like a non-success. Don't rest on your laurels. You're one stop away from Palookaville. And it was a really interesting thing because the company vibe at the moment was how successful and how great we were. And he was the one voice who's like, nope, you're not, you know, you're not as great as you think you are. It's good success for sure, but not as good as you could be. You're one stop away from Palookaville. And I think he's he sort of like, everyone's on one side of the boat and the boat's tipping in that direction. And he is the only person who could go to the other side and tip in the other direction. And that's because of the role of the CEO has this big authority and big voice. He's the only one who could balance the boat out because we all would happily rested on our laurels and kept on doing what we were doing because we thought that was great. And he he managed to shift the direction of the boat, but he had to do that single-handedly, right? Interesting. I mean, do you think that, I don't know, part of me wants to say, but did he celebrate enough of the, like, did he allow the group to, to kind of celebrate the win, I guess, if there was one, it sounds like there was. So I think there's in one hand, I think it's important to allow the team to celebrate the wins and stuff like that. But I also see how and why he did that. Cause you want to keep them moving forward and wanting to do bigger, better, more, instead of kind of thinking, Oh, wow, this is the high and let's go back and maybe won't get that win again. But I guess raising the bar is what I'm trying to say. He kind of wanted to raise the bar. Well, I think it was it was raising the bar. And it, by the way, there was some celebration. He wasn't like negating the celebration, let's be clear. I mean, we, we did have like, you know, a lot of success at the company. And so he wasn't kind of like down on it. But, but the point was, is that he probably saw that even that the success was a door to another success that we needed to work to achieve. So he wasn't being like, you know, a downer. <laughs> but but what he was saying was like, look, you guys, like celebrate, but like don't rest on your laurels. And and, and I guess my 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 point on that is actually it's funny. In Aura, we have a value that's aim higher, right? Which is do incredible, right? Do the do the amazing things, but don't stop there. Because if you really want to change the world, you really want to have an impact on the world, and you got to keep going. If you want to put a dent in the universe, like it doesn't just happen because you had a good quarter, guys. Like that's just not sufficient. I mean, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And I think that was, I don't know, it was a lesson I took away. And, and maybe as I think about your question, which is like, what's the, you know, surprising about a job of CEO? Is it like, sometimes you have to not just, you know, roll with the tide of your team, but to work against it, right? And conversely, when they're, everyone's in the dumps and they've missed the number and they're feeling terrible, you have to be the person who's like, no, guys, the vision, like, look where we're going. Look at how bright the future is. Look at where we be. And and by the way, that's 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 challenging because you're one voice. You might be the only voice who's, who's believing that because everyone else is like, oh my God, we lost the deal or we missed the quarter, whatever it is. Right. You have to be the one that's full of hope and, uh, you know, inspiration. Meanwhile, you know, you turn around and you're like, oh God, I hope we can pull this off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't let that show. Exactly. That's why it's lonely. And I think a lot of people, it's, you're not the first CEO to say it's a lonely at the top. And I, 
I've been an entrepreneur myself and it's lonely because you're right. There's, you can't, and maybe talking about what it is that you can't really share, but I think that kind of touched on it there where when things are not great, you can't really show that because you have to be the light and show the North star and stuff for the team to keep everybody going. That's right. That's right. You can't join the pity party. Unfortunately, you got to find another, you got to form your own in another way and <laughs> outside of the company. You got to get an invitation to a new party. Got to get everyone. Got to get everyone amped up about where they're going. Yes, you mentioned one of the values is aim higher. What are some other values? Well, so one of the first values, and people talk about values all the time, but like I think it's it's really important to have a set of values. If you don't have have a set, you should have a set. But it's also equally important that they're embraced by the the team and the company. So on the first couple of days, I came to the company to Aura. People quoted the values back to me, and the one that they quoted most often there were two. One was Ubuntu which is, you know, means we, not me. It's a spirit of togetherness. It's, it's about collaboration and, and being, you know, kind of one team. It's not about competition. It's about winning together. There's all these things about, you know, if you want to go far, go together. If you want to go fast, go alone. You know, there's a lot of sort of we, not me kind of vibes here, but, but people would, would hashtag Ubuntu at the end of their Slack post. And I was like, okay, so wow, that's interesting. That's a value that's really taken root. So that's one. And the other one was earn trust. And I think that goes to, Actually, it's sort of the best values are ones that are really foundational to the company and the product. And in this one, one of the things about Aura that's special is that it's all based in science and it's medical grade sensors and a consumer wearable and it's measured from the finger is a, is a more accurate measurement site than the wrist. And so it's all about accuracy. And therefore, that accuracy fosters trust. So when Aura tells you to bring it on or when Aura says, take it easy, you might be getting sick. You want to trust that. And if you trust that, then it's a really powerful tool, really powerful thing. But if you don't, it's nothing. And so earning trust, really critical for the product and also critical for the people because the people who work together, they need to trust each other. Our customers need to trust us. We need to trust that the technology that we're building is going to have a positive impact on the world. So earning trust was a really powerful one that, that came through. So I know the company, I think, has raised like $150 million or something like that. Um, are you? Something like that. Yeah. Are you on the fundraising track? Have you participated in any of the fundraising part? Are you, are you going out for a round soon? Yeah. What's interesting is right before I joined, we'd had kind of a big fundraising round and all the insiders had come in and, and put some funds in. And I was kind of chartered with, hey, you know, see if you can go and and fill out the rest of this round. And I had never really done, I mean, I, I, I guess I've done fundraising in the past, but never anything at this scale and never anything with institutional investors, even though I've been on boards and, you know, done, done things like that, but I never had to sort of be the person. We sort of had a couple of investor meetings. I was in, in the job for a couple months. And <laughs> this is in, I guess, July and August of, of 2022, when the stock market had collapsed, all these things. And Aura's story is quite compelling. A lot of people were really like enthusiastic about the product and the company. So it wasn't like a tough sell. People wanted to meet with us. They wanted to hear the story. And within the space of about three weeks, we signed up about $40 million of funds. And I was like, this is easy. <laughs> right. Wait, false <laughs> this is, advertising. This, yeah. This is this is this is easy. And I think the reality is, is that having something really good to sell makes your job as a salesperson so much easier. But it was, but it was a really interesting experience because I suddenly got the, the the sort of crash course in in how investors 
think about making an investment and what you know what's compelling to them and and you know we had quite good financials but the lesson i took away is that people invested yes they invest on the back of the financials but they also invested on the back of the story and the vision and and so maybe that's the so what of fundraising is like vision counts for so much because that's a little bit what if you don't believe the vision the financials are interesting but maybe not supremely interesting vision is where you're going and an investor wants to hear where you're going mhm so while we're on that topic, where are you guys going? Let's hear what's next for Aura Ring and any final advice you have for aspiring CEOs, people that want to be in the CEO seat. No, that's great. Well, we just we just acquired a company called Proxy. And Proxy has a bunch of really interesting capabilities. But one of the things that we think about is the healthcare opportunity and, and the opportunity to move from a world where healthcare is really about sick care. You know, let's give you an intervention. Let's let's do a surgery. Let's to a triple bypass, when in fact, a lot of health outcomes can really be affected by prevention. And so our, our kind of big vision is how do we become part of the behavioral change that improves health outcomes, that transforms the healthcare industry from one where it's, it's about sick care to something that we call human care, which is preventative, anticipatory, behavior-based change that yields healthier outcomes over the course of someone's life. And how do we create a technology that enables that? How do we create software that makes that easier? How do we create behavioral triggers that help people make those decisions for themselves and avoid things like these long-term negative outcomes that behavioral choices can affect? So things like type 2 diabetes or, or things like cardiovascular disease or even cognitive ailments like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, both of which are implicated in, in poor sleep. How do we How do we help people get better habits and better understanding of their body and their physiology to improve their health outcomes over time. So how do we move the industry and people forward? And that's a pretty big vision. Now, to do that, you've got to sort of steer towards the healthcare industry. And there's lots of interesting things happening in the healthcare industry right now. First of all, COVID gave a huge rush of, of both awareness. Everyone's now extremely aware of their health post-COVID. It's certainly connected fitness got a huge boost as people suddenly realized that that they, you know, they ought to take care of themselves and maybe had a little bit more flexibility in their lives to do so. At the same time, digital therapeutics started emerging and became a thing over the course of the last five years. And digital therapeutics are basically software that can help you drive a medical outcome. Telemedicine emerged in the same period where all of a sudden the only way you could see a doctor was staring at your iPhone and asking for a prescription or something like that. So all these changes are afoot. And we think one of the factors in the changes is this idea that if you collect data on somebody or for yourself overnight, you're getting a really clean signal on their physiology and you can set their baseline and see the deviations from their baseline. And as those deviations occur, if you look at large scale data and you think about the power of computing and machine learning over large scale data, you might be able to make predictions. And therefore, on the back of those predictions, you might be able to incent some behavior change. I recently was in Finland. They had looked at a thousand nights of sleeping heart rate activity for me. And they said, hey, listen, you've got some ectopic beats. You might want to pay attention to those. That might be something you want to do. And that's the kind of thing that like passive overnight monitoring gives you a window that's different than going to a doctor once or twice a year where they take your temperature and say, how are you feeling? And what about sleep apnea? I'm so curious about, is this something that can help predict whether or not you have like sleep apnea? Well, one of the features of the product is that it detects overnight SpO2, which is the oxygen concentration in your blood. And if that falls below a th certain threshold, it's almost certain that you have some form of sleep apnea, which is basically obstruction of the breathing at night 
where you actually sort of reduce the amount of oxygen in your blood until your body goes, wake up and kind of jolts you with, you know, a, a blast of adrenaline and cortisol to sort of get you to start breathing again. And that's very tough on the heart. It's very tough on, on it ruins your sleep. You don't get good rest. So sleep apnea, it turns out to be one of the things that is very much underdiagnosed. Clinicians think it's probably one in five people might have sleep apnea, but it's only diagnosed one in 20 times, you know, so it's, it's underdiagnosed and having this kind of visibility might help someone. Being diagnosed is, I think it's really hard to actually to get diagnosed, right? You have to go to some sleep center. You got to go to a sleep, sleep lab. Who yeah. wants to sleep at a sleep lab? No one, like no one wants to go there, right? It's like, why would you want to do that? It's overhead and time and energy. And, and and if you're really desperate, you will go. And, you know, there are lots of sleep practitioners who will like, who will help you and maybe even help you, you know, solve your, your sleep apnea problems. There's all sorts of good and reliable interventions that can help with sleep apnea. But if you can screen yourself and say, I don't have it, then you don't have to, as you say, spend the time or money to go do it. But if you do, then then you know that you ought to really get diagnosed. And so we kind of exist in that place of screening you in or out of, of sleep apnea and giving you some visibility to how you're overnight oxygenation is working for you. I think being able to predict or help the consumer know maybe what kind of signals they have that are signaling that they have some kind of sleep disorder is really interesting. You know, it's funny. I was looking at the data on my sleep one night and I was like, huh, I got up. I was awake at like one in the morning and I'm thinking, was I sleepwalking? Like, I don't know if I'm asleep. Who would know if they're sleepwalking because they're sleeping, right? But then I realized I was like, oh, I have a two-year-old and he was screaming at night. So I went in to see if it was all right, right? So I was like, okay, at least I know I wasn't sleepwalking. I was actually awake. I remember that moment. But you look through and you're like, it's kind of shocking sometimes because you're asleep and you're, you look and you're like, oh, I was awake at that time. What was I doing? Well, you know, what's, what's measured is managed, right? And if you start to have some visibility into something, you can optimize it and you can make changes and see what the impact of those changes are. We have this idea that, that, that you know, if you, if you do something like don't drink coffee for two weeks and your sleep scores improve, that's a pretty strong motivator for you to not drink coffee, especially if you feel different. We also think a lot about, uh, you know, various domains of health and sort of to the question of where Aura is going, like there's women's health. That's a huge part of the kind of medical landscape that, that's been very, very exciting over the past couple of years as 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 science has revealed like not everybody is the same right you got you have the temperature tracks your temperature for and i think it's trying to predict the period your period right it does it turns out that that your cycle your, your menstrual cycle has a really clear arc in terms of your body temperature and so as you enter various phases of your cycle where you're entering your your uh, luteal phase where your you know the egg is being dropped into this to to the womb like that has a really clear signal in terms of your temperature. And that gives, we're, we're able to sort of see the trend of that change coming. So you can sort of say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to get my, my period in, in five or six days. That also has a role to play in fertility. It also has a role to play in contraception. We're partnered with a company called Natural Cycles, which does digital contraception. Natural Cycles ingests your temperature scores from Aura and then uses an algorithm that's FDA approved to say, Today is a good day to have sex and not get pregnant. And today is definitely a day to not have sex if you don't want to get pregnant. And it's as reliable a form of contraception as, as hormonal contraception or, or a, you know, a barrier-based contraception. You know, there's all sorts of horizons of, of exploration, whether it's heart health, cardiovascular health, fitness, uh, metabolic health. We just recently partnered with CGM, which is a continuous glucose monitor provider. So you can start to see patterns of how your sleep and health interact with 
with your blood glucose levels and how they change over over the day and over the night. And we're just at the beginning of all these explorations of giving your body a voice so that you can work better with your body. And if you want to bring it on, then you can bring it on. It's insane what this little ring can do. Yeah, it does a lot. Who would have thought this this ring can do so many things? It just sounds endless. It's really cool. Big fan of Aura Ring and of you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today to tell us your journey in becoming CEO of Aura Ring. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.